Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. This is a podcast from Minute Media. They're just a good team. You know, they're, uh, they're, they're more difficult to, to pitch to um, because they are, they're kind of scrappy. You know, they're not, just, they're not just giving at bats away and just trying to hit all, all homers. They're, they're, more, they're, very, they're definitely more selective. They're, a little, they're more picky. Um, they'll battle you, and for, that's from top to bottom. I mean, even Pete, who's a, a home run hitter, a power guy, he's, he's, he's got a lot of back control. He's, his hands are pretty good, you know, for, for a guy that hits the ball so hard. Um, so, you know, they're, um, in terms of their, their lineup, you know, they're, they're really well put together. They got a really strong pitching staff, and guys are going to start to come back. And- It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, July the 17th, 2022. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silver. You can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silver Media and the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silver at talkingmetspodcast.com. No G, Mike Silver at TalkingMetsPodcast.com, and I want to welcome in the good folks from the fan-sided podcasting network as well as RisingApple.com. Well, welcome to the end of the first half edition of the Talking Mets podcast. I think you'd all agree, time to take a little blow, time to get a break. Some of you might be tonight enjoying the MLB draft. I am not going to get into any draft talk because, let's face it, I have no idea what any of these kids are going to be, and if they're 18 years old, Harold Reynolds and the guy on the MLB Network uh, desk have no idea what these kids are going to be. And you're probably looking at some of them not making an impact for at least five years, if ever. We will get into draft and the Mets, just not tonight. So I I, I just can't get into it. I know that there is a, a, a ton of business into that whole thing. I just, let's stay the course with who we are. And who we are is a Talking Mets podcast that talks about what's going on in the field right now. And you heard, and it's a clip from earlier in the week after the Mets-Braves series, you heard Charlie Morton talk about what he thought about the Mets. Who, what better flattery than to hear your competition talk about why they think you're good? And I thought Charlie Morton explained pretty well the first half 2022 Mets, and uh, I thought he explained it perfectly 
about who this team is and, and why they're tough and why we should feel so optimistic about them. It's interesting, as I've been seeing numbers float throughout the last couple of days, and yes, the All-Star break is a lot uh, sh- you know, deeper into the season than normal. I like it like second week of July. We're going into the third, you know, almost the fourth week of July right now. I like it a little earlier, right after the 4th of July, I think is a perfect timing. I don't know if this is was scheduled this way. I don't know originally what the schedule was. Maybe the lockout, because the lockout pushed the season a week. Maybe that played into it. But anyway, be that as it may, we're at the All-Star break, you know, 93 games in, so you're not really at the midway point. But when you start to look at this team and where this team is, Outside of the 86 team, or maybe even 2006, and this team is actually better record-wise than 2016, this is probably the best first half outside of that historic world champion 86 team that the Mets have had in their history. And think about that. Think about how far they've come since Thanksgiving when Steven Matz rejected the Mets, when it looked like nobody wanted to take the GM job just a couple of weeks earlier when everybody said that Steve Cohen was going to be unmitigated failure, nobody wants to work for him, there's culture problems, nobody wants to take his money. Not that long ago, not even a year ago. And here we are at the All-Star break with a manager that is every bit the kind of manager that you would want for this ball club, with a club that, as Charlie Morton said, is a tough lineup, good pitching, getting reinforcements. They're not one-dimensional. They're, they never get too high or too low. And really, I think they've taken on the personality of their manager uh, where, you know, Buck holds them accountable. He communicates well. He manages the the media well. He manages the bullpen. I mean, if you didn't see how, what Buck is about managing the bullpen, you saw it this weekend where he was willing to lose a game to make sure he played the long game with his bullpen and didn't blow anybody out and didn't just to win a series at Wrigley Field against the lowly Cubs team who was very plucky over the last couple of days. He managed perfectly how you want to keep your uh, relievers healthy for the long game, for the stretch run, what have you. Seems to manage his boss as well. You don't have any of these unnamed sources. Doesn't seem to be any backbiting yet and things like that. So Buck is as advertised. You know, he's every bit what you would expect if you were a fan of uh, the NFL, the NBA, a Pat Riley or a Bill Belichick. I think that highly of him. He's even better than I would have expected. I have to be honest. I didn't realize how good of a manager Buck Walter was. You know, the perception of him is was a control freak, a guy who drove his players too hard, old school, couldn't keep up with the times. He has been nothing but that. Uh, he, he, he's been nothing like that at all, at all. So uh, Buck has been what he's been advertised. And I have to say, uh, this is the best first half of Mets baseball, I think, that I've experienced since the 2006 season. You've got a lot of the similar energy. Things falling their way. And when you make your own breaks, when you do a lot of the little things, when you play the game right, ground ball to third in the second game of the doubleheader that gets you a double play with the bases loaded and one out with Yohan Lopez on the mound, those things start to happen. Yeah, sure, you had what happened today, which is those same that same ground ball right up the middle wins the game for the Cubs. And as I said, uh, when you're in a late-inning game, one-run game, I don't care if it's the Cubs, the Reds, or the Braves— they're big league ball clubs. Anything can happen. And I think, again, this weekend, and we'll get to that, and now even Juan Soto's name is coming into the mix. So this is, we got a, we got a lot of stuff we could talk about on this show, even though we're kind of recapping the first half. Um, you saw, again, what this team needs. It needs another bat. It needs to lengthen that lineup. It needs another arm in that bullpen. And uh, that's easier said than done. And you may have seen the guy across the way making an audition because, the boy, would David Robertson, as I've said for a couple of weeks, look really good as the second closer and eighth inning guy on this team. Would bring back a little bit of that Addison Reed, Jerry's familiar dominant 8-9, eighth, ninth inning you saw back in 2016. Would bring some of that back. And, and sure, boy, could the Mets use that. So, um, so, yeah, Buck is probably the big, in ways, the big culture change and one of the big stories of the first half of how he's led this club. But to me, if you look at the 2022 Mets and, you know, we could get into surprises and disappointments and, you know, what we expect going forward. And a lot of it we've talked about maybe to a certain degree ad nauseum leading up to this show. But I think the Mets real MVP is not Pete Alonso in his record setting number of RBIs before the break. It's, you know, not a guy like Starling Marte who plays great on both sides of the ball. It's not Max Scherzer, who's also 
could be considered a culture changer and what he's brought with, you know, creating this thinking man's pitching staff with this coffee clutch that he's got going on. And I mean, in a lot of ways, I think guys like David Peterson, they're better because they have a guy like that on their staff that's able to impart all that Hall of Fame knowledge. A guy like Bassett, who's uh, a maestro out there. No, it's not that. To me, it's Edwin Diaz. And and I think you I think we don't really understand how big and how important Edwin Diaz is to this team because let's face it, what are they playing nine hundred ball in extra innings? That's because of a guy like Edwin Diaz who could come in with a runner in second, uh, the the ghost runner, and not allow that guy to go anywhere and maybe strike at the side or strike out a couple of hitters before he gets the ground ball like he did Saturday afternoon. Uh, he's on pace to have one of the best bullpen seasons in Mets history right now he's got nearly two wins above replacement the record for wins above replacement and I think because he won't pitch the kind of innings that a Tug McGraw did back in the 70s is a guy like Tug McGraw in 72 and 71 Jesse Orozco in 83 but if you want to go more modern the best bullpen season I was looking at just using wins above replacement yeah you have you know, Jerry's Familia in 2015 and Randy Myers in 88 and uh, Armando Benitez in 99. I mean, I saw those guys. I saw all three of those guys pitch. Was a little younger for Myers, so probably, you know, couldn't appreciate that one more. Billy Wagner, 06, who's very good his first year coming over from Philadelphia before he blew out his arm. All those seasons I saw, and I'll tell you why, Diaz this year has been that and then some. I mean, striking out 50% of the batters that he faces, I mean, that's video game-esque. That's something that you wouldn't even get maybe in Stratomatic. That's something that you'd get in some kind of old school, and I'm probably dating myself, Nintendo game. So to me, the first half, and if you want to talk about the Mets' first half and who they are, I think it's Edwin Diaz, a guy that's been through the the the, the, the washer here in New York, who's been criticized, who came here behind the eight ball because of the fact that they gave up in an era where here we are, we're doing the draft here on this Sunday night, and everyone's going to fall in love with Jet Williams, the, the Mets draft pick, and project this guy out to be the next whatever. We don't know. We fall in love with these guys before they ever take a professional at-bat or throw a professional pitch, and then they get traded for a, an established, dominant uh, you know, guy who's coming off a 57-save season. Very hard to save 57 games, even in the at that time in, in the middle of nowhere playing for Seattle. I mean, Seattle's about as far to the moon as you could possibly get. I mean, the next stop, sometimes you feel like is the moon when you play in Seattle. You're all the way out there. And, and New York couldn't be further away. And you trade for this guy. He's maligned because of the trade, not his fault. Comes in, comes in and struggles in New York and struggles for a couple of years, goes through a couple of managers, and you're always going into this season. After a pretty good season last year, he still had that little hiccup that right around the All-Star break when he blew those games against the Pirates and he blew a game later in the year against the Nats and you still feel like when the chips were down, can this guy really get it done here in New York? And I know he's on a walk year, but he really is very much aligned with this team that has been through so much since 2019 and now all the work, all the improvements, all the, um, um, you know... Uh, you know, effort that he's put into being here and wanting to be here and, and embracing the challenge and embracing the pressure and embracing the yoke that we talk about around his neck. Now you're seeing the other side of it where he's succeeding. And he's basically saying, yeah, I can be an elite closer in New York. Now there's a lot more to prove. There's a whole second half of baseball, 60-somewhat games, and then there's the postseason. And just like Jerry's familiar, had a great 2015. Everybody's going to remember that game one home run on the quick pitch. That's what they're going to remember, and and to a certain degree, he had a he probably was overused after that. Subsequently, by Terry Collins, you know, he had a great 2016 with 50 somewhat saves. But you remember the Connor Gillespie home run in the playoffs. So as good as Familia was in 2015, 2016, and as those saves in the World Series, not all of that was his fault. There was bad defense in some of them behind him. You just remember that. So all Diaz has done here is to a certain degree exercise the doubts about him. Now the real fun will begin, just like for the rest of the team, where now he gets to pitch in very high leverage games. Got a Subway Series coming up, a pennant race in front of him. Mets are up three games, uh, and so on and so forth. And then you got potential postseason baseball, and that's when the real fun begins. And look, every closer that I mentioned, exception of Myers, who never really was here long enough to, you know, he didn't get a chance to get a big out in the postseason because Davey Johnson stuck with Doc Gooden. Billy Wagner had rough postseason moments here as a member of the Mets. Uh, Diaz has had rough moments. Uh, you know, Armando Benitez, I mentioned him, had a big 99, had rough moments 
blew a game against the Braves in the postseason, and then you know what happened against the Yankees the following year. So every closer I mentioned that had these dominant, elite, you know, even Tug McGraw had his ups and downs if you go back to the 70s. Every closer has had their tough moments in much bigger venues than saving a game against the Cubs on a Saturday afternoon in July a raw Saturday afternoon out there, a rainy Saturday afternoon in Chicago. So, you know, the fun is uh, is in front of us, and we'll get to learn more about Edwin Diaz. But to me, he's the team MVP. He's an all-star. And as I said last week, as we were on the air, and it was a name that he was going to the all-star team, n- not a guy that, I mean, I love Pete. I love McNeil. You know, Marte's been much better than I could have even thought. But to me, Diaz is the guy that I really felt good for because he deserves it. He's been through a lot of crap. And really, the crap that he's been through is really aligned with what this team has been through since 2019. And they're on the other side of it, hopefully. And now they just got to keep pushing forward. Let's face it. If I had told you back coming out of spring training before that opening series against the Nats, sign right here, the Sunday before the All-Star game. That night, you're on the Talking Mets podcast. I'm out there talking on the podcast. You'd be up three games in the loss column, two and a half up on the Braves. Would you have signed for it? I bet you would. Now, you're, you're probably saying now you're not happy because, you know, 12 weeks ago, 10 weeks ago, it was a 10-and-a-half game lead. But everything is about regression to the mean, and everybody kind of falls into where they are. Look, the Braves, what, 30-and-11 in the last 41 games? That's NBA, you know, historic level kind of play. They're going to level out. Now it's a matter of the Mets swinging it back. So the Mets are in a really good place. Um. And I think that now you could take a blow. I think the fans need to take a blow. The players, I think you were starting to see them get a little bit tired. You know, they had put a lot of emotion into the Atlanta series. And the Cubs series was a real teams that aren't serious about winning. That's the stub your toe series. We have you have the all-star break in front of you. You want to get home and take a, a couple of days with the family. And you look past the bad team. And they went out there and they slaughtered them in game one. And they won a couple of tough extra inning games. I mean, real tough games on Saturday. And look, they they should have won today's game. A uh, guy gets thrown at the plate. A couple of uh, big two-out hits. They probably put up a crooked number, and it's not even a game come the eighth inning. But be that as it may, they take three of four. They have a five and two road trip. You could not ask for more than that, especially as they really were stumbling a little bit in that Miami series at home uh, just a week ago. And you're starting to see them play with a little tightness and maybe look a little tired. So this was that last push, and and you could see the difference. That's what having the kind of leader that Buck is at the helm, uh, where you see a big difference. Where a year ago, you know, maybe it's not the same thing. You know, maybe they allow the Braves to take two out of three. Maybe they stub their toe against the Cubs. We're talking about perspective today and how you know what could be instead of what is. So. Um, before we get to kind of all the Juan Soto talk, because I know that's one of the themes of the show, and I have a lot to talk about that, and I'll do that after the break, I wanted to kind of give you a synopsis of the players that I'm l- going to be looking at as we go forward. To me, outside of Edwin Diaz, who really isn't a surprise because the talent was always there, but I think how he's brought it all together, how good he's been, and how elite he's been, I mean, to me, you got to put him in that surprise category. But putting him aside, because we've talked about him, the other two big surprises to me are Taiwan Walker and Carlos Carrasco. Carrasco maybe to a certain degree a little bit more than Walker because of how good they've been and how they've – going into the season, I thought that the, the offense was better. We had done the calculator. We thought that they were five-run-per-game team. Uh, I was a little worried about the bullpen, but with Diaz and Lugo and – and and maybe you know the fact that uh, Trevor May at that time was there, and and you saw, you know Drew Smith coming out of it, and at that you know Chish and Shreve was exciting. I thought they would need bullpen reinforcements, but I wasn't overly worried about the bullpen. But the rotation to me, especially when Degrom went down, you had Scherzer, but then you looked and you said you don't know about McGill, you don't know about uh, Walker had a bad second half. Peterson has always been uh, frustrating with his command. And Carrasco hadn't done anything for about four years. So you're saying to yourself, man, you know, this rotation could be very average. And it's been anything but. I mean, has Carrasco been league average? No, he hasn't. He's been slightly below league average. But I think part of that has been he's been very Bartolo Colon-esque. And what I mean by that is Colon would be really, really good for five or six starts and then have a total stinker. And when you looked at his numbers at the end of the year, they weren't great but a lot of that bad was in a few starts that dragged him down. I think Carrasco really is the cologne of this staff when you think about it. 
you know, maybe he doesn't have that, you know, folksy type of cult hero status, but he plays a very similar role. You know, he gives them innings, he goes out there and he he pitches big games. He gives them what they need out of a veteran in the back half of the rotation. He's having to, you know, he's, he leads them in wins. I mean, who would have picked that coming out of spring that and before DeGrom got hurt? That with DeGrom and Scherzer on the roster, even with Walker, Taiwan Walker, that Carrasco would have the most wins on the staff, double digits, could potentially, if he continues to pitch well in the second half, could win 15, 16, 17 games. I mean, that that to me is the biggest surprise. And Taiwan Walker has developed into a really top-end starter. And we've seen him go through the league a few times, and I know he's pitched against Miami a couple of times and Chicago and what have you, and we'll see as he gets into uh, some of the big boy uh, games against Atlanta and the Yankees and you know San Diego coming up this weekend and what have you. But Taiwan Walker, to me, especially with DeGrom coming back, when you have Scherzer, DeGrom, uh, uh, Bassett, and then you could go forward with, with with Walker. Forget about what Carrasco is giving you, and and the surprise there. This is a very deep rotation, and a rotation that because of how good Walker's been, the loss of Scherzer and the loss of Degrom for as long as they've been. I mean, they've they've lost Degrom for more than half the season. You know, we thought by now at least you get a start out of the Grom, even when we got the bad news back in April 1st. Uh, and who would have thought you would have lost seven weeks of Scherzer? The fact that Walker's been this good, it, to me, has been a godsend to this rotation. So Walker, to me, is one of the biggest surprises out there. And maybe, more so than Carrasco, a bigger surprise, because he was so, to a certain degree, he was so good in the first half. Then they had the sticky stuff ban. Nobody knew how kind of that would work. He was so bad in the second half. But he's got three or four pitches. I was watching a segment with Gelbs about his routine, how he not only physically prepares for his starts, but also mentally prepares by rewatching the game. He's becoming quite the student of pitching. And with his repertoire being so diverse and so varied, guys like that really have a lot of staying power. And those are guys that you want to invest in as long as they're healthy. And to me, Taiwan Walker, who I think has a player option, is probably going to opt out because he's, look, he's looking for a big payday, is someone that you're going to be looking to invest in going forward. So to me, that's the biggest surprise. Diaz we all knew about, but Carrasco and Walker, to me, huge surprises. All three of those guys, big reasons why the Mets are where they are. Now, disappointments. There's actually quite a few. When you look at a team that is 23 games over 500, one of the best first halves since the 86 Mets, that this, this team has had in their franchise history, you have kind of a, a bunch of disappointments, which is interesting because that's how much adversity they've overcome. Um, we know about Dom Smith and my feelings on Dom Smith that he wasn't very good to begin with. I didn't think he'd be this bad, but Dom Smith is a huge disappointment. And I'll lump in J.D. Davis along with them. The Mets are a bat short and are actually now being hurt by the catching position, which we knew we weren't going to get a ton of offense out of especially when Nito started. And when and you don't have uh, McCann with his power, and I don't think you can have any power from McCann because of his hand injury this year, and you get down to the Mazika level, you really are at a significant below-league average offensive portion of lineup with the catching. And that's okay because they're there to call a game, catch and throw, and, and we've always talked about that. But when you add in a DH spot that when you take Pete Alonso out is just as bad as those you know 550 OPS catchers, you have yourself a problem in the lineup. And the lineup, especially when guys like Marte and McNeil were not in there, really is dependent then on a few guys like Nimmo, like Alonzo, like Canna, um, to really carry Lindor, really carry the offense. And if any of those guys go into a slump at the time when you don't have your Martes and McNeils in the lineup, you really don't have anybody picking up the slack. I mean, outside of a couple of games for those guys, Dom and JD, they have not done their part to help uh, you know, lengthen that lineup, even for a short span of time, even if they're not who we thought, like Dom wasn't the 60-game player that he was in the pandemic season, and JD is definitely not the player that we saw in the second half of 2019. Even if they were something a little less, it would still be at least better than the version you have now. So a huge disappointment, making the necessity for the Mets to get a bat. Will that bat be a more realistic scenario, like a Trey Mancini or a Josh Bell? or Nelson Cruz, or something like that, or, you know, Wilson Contreras, or something like that? Or, you know, will it go much higher into the Juan Soto territory? We'll get to that.
Uh, Robinson Cano I could throw in there because uh, he's now in Atlanta, which we didn't talk about last week. Talk about the ultimate troll job by the Braves. Huge disappointment. I think we all had question marks about him, but I didn't think he'd be released after 30 days. I didn't think he'd hit a buck 30. Um, and Seth Lugo, to me, is also a huge disappointment. To me, Seth Lugo is, uh, at this point, when you look at the bullpen pecking order, has fallen behind uh, or is in more. I, maybe I trust Colin Holderman more than Seth Lugo. Don't like the curveball. Don't see the command of the curveball. Um, not the same command overall. Very hittable. Uh, very league average. And um, not sure if it's health. Not sure. You know, I know he's had some. Uh, his you know his child has been sick, so maybe there's stuff going on still at home that we don't know about. There's a lot we could ask. Maybe he's just come back down to earth. Is it the spider attack? We don't know. But the dominant second closer that you thought you had with Lugo, uh, that's not there. And that's why even now you look across town and you looked uh, this weekend at David Robertson. You're like, man, that's what you thought Seth Lugo is. You know, that's what Robertson could probably give you. And he's New York tested. So, you know, we got our, you know, we got our eyes set. You know, we got the, you know, the little hearts, like the Bugs Bunny cartoon, the hearts of the eyes set on David Robertson and the Cubs across uh, the way this past weekend. And then, you know, it's kind of weird that I'm bringing him up, but he's not only a disappointment, but I think he's actually a player to watch. I'll give you the third part of this is a player to watch in the second half. And that's Eduardo Escobar. We all know the leadership he brings. You know, he's beloved in that clubhouse. He seems to be a glue guy. He's very steady at third base. He reminds me a little bit of how Scott Brocious was with those late 90s Yankees. He's got a little bit of that in his DNA. And despite the steadiness, and he had a decent weekend in Chicago against the Cubs, and he would have a big RBI. I mean, Lindor, it was a perfect throw to the plate. I think Lindor, I'd I'd have to see it from a a top-line view above the field. I don't think he got a great jump on that play either. But he's striking out at the highest rate of his career. His peripheral numbers all indicate he's not chasing. He's hitting the ball as hard as ever. You know, there was nothing at Baseball Savant when I was looking at it last night saying, you know, is there something I could point out? You know, his BABIP isn't terribly low. The thing, all the thing I could go by is my eyes. Just like with Lugo, I don't need to go to Baseball Savant to say Lugo's command of his curveball stinks. And his command overall stinks. And maybe his velocity is a tick down, but not so much. You know, when you look at the average it out, it doesn't seem to be. You know, maybe his ability to come in mid-inning, and and I'm kind of getting off a little tangent here with Lugo, but there's a point here. It it packs him. With Escobar, it's less overt. But the eyes tell me he can't catch up to the fastball the same way. And and he's not a Cano-level slow bat. But I think the bat has slowed a bit. Now, some of that could be an injury we don't know about. Some of that might be just a bad year, late start, lockout. But he is north of 30. And maybe you could even say, well, the ball's not juiced as much as this year, so the the, the power's gone down. But he's still on pace to hit about 18 to 20 homers. You know, maybe he wasn't ever, you know, maybe in the juice ball, 2019, the 35 home run guy, that's not realistic. But... This is a guy that we have to watch because if he is more the player we saw this weekend in Chicago, we know he can be steady at third base. We know he's going to make the plays. And he can play other positions. He can play second if you need to in a pinch and things. But he's been a third baseman this year. But if he can, out of the seven hole, provide some power and provide big hits and start to have a livelier bat, a bat that's more 750 OPS than 650, a guy that could lengthen that lineup even before they go out and acquire another bat for the designated hitter role. That's a much different Mets offense than before because right now the Mets are averaging about a run less a game over the last two or three weeks. I think in July they are about 4.3. And that's really not enough. You're putting a lot of pressure on the pitching staff. And to me, that's where the biggest difference as we go down the stretch and we really tie a bow on this first half. That, to me, is the biggest difference between the Mets and the Braves because the Braves can bludgeon teams with the home run, and they and, and you heard Charlie Morton basically say it. The Mets are a team that can score in other ways other than the home run. The Braves, to me, are a team that only can score in a lot of ways with the home run. But the good thing about the Braves' offense is they can bludgeon bad teams like the Cubs, like the Reds, like the Nats, and leave no doubt that those teams can't come back. Mets are playing the games a little too close to the vest, in my opinion, where... Their offense right now only goes so far 
especially because you're looking at two to three with Escobar not hitting dead spots. You basically got third of the the game. You're you're not really confident those innings are going to go well. Those are creating closer games, putting more pressure on the starting pitching, putting more pressure on the bullpen, and ultimately asking this team to win one to two run games every night. And eventually, when there's a flip of the coin, like I said, you saw this weekend, there was three flips of the coin. Two on Saturday, one on Sunday. Mets won two out of three. That's pretty darn good. That's 667 baseball. But that's asking a lot of a team to play, even a team as good as the Mets with the kind of closer they have, with the kind of starting rotation that they have, and they will get better with DeGrom coming back, to play at that clip in close games all year. It's way too much to ask. You know, in a lot of ways... 50 50 is the best you could ask for in close games, even against bad teams. They're big league ball clubs. So the Mets need to lengthen that lineup. It's critically important. In some ways, it's as important as getting an arm like Robertson here out of the bullpen, getting another bat. And if they can get that bat, and they will, they'll get somebody. I don't know if it'll be Juan Soto. Actually, I don't think it's going to be Juan Soto, and I'll tell you why in a minute. But if they could get that, but more importantly, if Escobar, because that's why I think he's the guy to watch, can tick more up towards the guy we saw this weekend. I'm not expecting him to be vintage Escobar from 2019, a high-level middle-of-the-order hitter, number five hitter. I'm asking him to be a number seven hitter. Be Scott Brocious, like like how Scott Brocious was in 98. Be that guy. Seriously. That's, that's all I'm asking for. You know, he wasn't sexy. You know, he had big hits for the Yankees, and, and, and everybody remembers his uh, home run in the World Series in 2001. But give me, you know... Uh, you know, yeah, he was a 300 hitter of the year. Give me, you know, 20 home runs and 75 RBI rate. I mean, he had a 120 OPS plus that year. Maybe that's asking a lot out of out of Escobar. But, you know, give me the 99 version of, of Brocious, who was slightly below league average, but a 722 OPS. Give me somewhere in between those two Brociuses, the 98 and the 99 Brocious. Give me somewhere in between. Right now, he's more like the 2000 Brocious who was on the way out, and uh, but still had a big home run in the World Series. So... Uh, you know, that's the guy I want to watch. And and to me, the Mets need to make these moves. You're two weeks away, a little over two weeks away from the trade deadline. And an arm in the bullpen, minimum one arm, preferably two. And that's going to get complicated because I'll speak to that in a minute. And that bat, whether it be in the Trey Mancini, and I'm not crazy about Nelson Cruz, but I like Josh Bell a lot. If you told me Josh Bell's too expensive, go after Mancini. It, there's so many teams in the race, it's going to be really interesting to see Two weeks could mean a lot, though. A week from now, things could change in this craziness of this three wild card world. So that's how we put a bow on the first half of the Mets season. Buck, Diaz, Escobar, three of the big names we're talking about with a little sprinkling of Walker and Carrasco in there. Those are the names that really float to the surface one way or the other. And then, of course, we got the big disappointments in JD and Dom and what have you and and Cano and Lugo and and and, and all that. So... Good way to kind of summarize the first half. You guys kind of see where we were, where we're going, what we're looking for. But there could be big talks on the on the way. And that's where I'm going to go into our second segment of the show is Juan Soto. Is Juan Soto realistic? Now, the word is he is. He's going to be put on the market. The Mets are one of the teams that have the kind of prospect capital that the Nats like. But there's complexities. And I'll tell you why I think a trade for Soto is complex now and in the offseason and why I do not think it's something that can happen at the deadline. And if it does happen, I think it's going to be hard for the Mets to pull it off. So let's take a quick break. When we come back, let's talk about the Juan Soto rumors. Let's talk a little bit more about how the Mets can get a bat and what kind of bat and where I think they're going to get that bat and what's realistic right after this. Ken Rosenthal, who broke this story a little while ago, uh, that's a big number, Ken. Please give us the details about what's going on here. Well, Kevin, you just gave them 15 years, $440 million, nothing deferred. Now, if you're Juan Soto, you might quibble with the average annual value, which is below $30 million. You might say it's backloaded, so it's really not worth as much in present-day dollars. And you might say also, I'm not sure who the Nationals' owner is going to be with the team for sale. But from the Nationals' perspective, if Soto isn't going to sign this kind of deal, he might never sign now, from a trade angle, he has this year left, earning $17.1 million, and then two more years with rising salaries in arbitration. Virtually any team, even the low-budget teams, can take him on. At that money, the question is who is going to have the most prospects, the best package to give. And keep in mind, there might not be a package out there that satisfies the Nationals. 
They don't have to trade him right away. They can wait until the offseason. Well, I know they've done business with the Dodgers in recent memory, and they have a lot of money, Ken. I'm just going to throw that out there and not ask you to comment on that one. But I do want to ask you, you touched on the ownership situation, right? The pending sale of the Nationals. How does that play into this whole thing, whether that's the Nationals' offer, whether that's Soto declining the offer? Does he think maybe there's more money with new owners? It does play into it, Kevin, and in a couple of different ways. One, the Nationals wanted clarity on this situation with the team in the process of being sold. They want to know, as they talk to prospective buyers, exactly what they've got to offer. And this shows prospective buyers, at least it will, once the trade market gets buzzing with this. Hey, we've got a guy that we offered $440 million to and that other teams are going to want. That makes our franchise more attractive. However, at the same time, if you're the Nationals, how much higher are you going to go when it comes to the point where ultimately it might be detrimental to the franchise if you're giving Juan Soto, say, $600 million. At some point, the asset is not worth what you're paying him. Now, I don't know if this is that point or not. I don't know that waiting for a new owner, Kevin, will make a difference here. I don't think it's going to get to that point. I expect he will be traded. We're back, and you heard it. You heard the breaking news from Fox Sports. That's our old friend Kevin Burkhart and Ken Rosenthal yesterday talking about the breaking news about Juan Soto turning down a 15-year, $440 million contract. And what surprises me first when I hear contracts like that, I mean, here I am criticizing for the better part of a year the Mets going 10 years with Lindor. I always talk about how I hate 10-year deals, and I'd go five years with hitters and three years with pitchers if I had my druthers and – you got away with that with doing that with Scherzer at 37 years old, but there was no way an in-prime Lindor was going to take a five, you know, six, you know, maybe a seven-year deal. But these guys want to be set up for life, and you look at 23 years old, uh, you know, Soto taking that kind of deal. Basically, that's his career. I mean, that's an A-Rod contract and and then this, into the second A-Rod contract. And I know Trout, what did he get, a 12-year deal or something? And I know that's you know what these guys want. They want the AAV. They want the, the, the security. Basically, they control their destiny. The problem with a 15-year contract, if I'm Soto, I'll talk from the Soto side, is even if you got what you wanted, if, you know, $40 million AAV, look at it seven, eight, nine years down the, uh, the road. Look at it seven years down the road. Go back seven years to 2015. Nobody would have thought a Major League Baseball player would be making $43 million like Max Scherzer. That's just seven years ago. That contract becomes outdated really quickly because you just don't know what the economy is going to look like. And I don't understand why they'd want to sign that. I understand a seven-year deal. But I'm thinking to myself, if you sign a seven-year deal, you buy it a couple arbitration years, you're back on the market at 30. An elite player like Soto, the market will change by that point. And I'm sure whatever he negotiates with his his agent is, is um, you know, going, you know, Probably going to have an opt out. I mean, when you get that kind of uh, when you get that kind of uh, contract, I think the team wants some kind of commitment. This is not the NBA where you know guys completely sign contracts and they still control their own destiny and what have you. So um, you know, look, Scott Boris is a smart guy. He he negotiated the A Rod contract. I wouldn't be surprised if he's putting Soto in that same class because he's very good. I mean, he's not A Rod. A Rod was at a was better because he played an elite position up the middle, and defensively he was a better player when you look at him for per position. But uh, from the Soto standpoint, I don't know why he would want that many years. I understand rejecting it on the AAV principle, even though $440 million is setting him up for life. As a player, you have an obligation, especially when you're that talented, to uh, you know get your value, to get you you know what your fair market value is. And $30 million a year, which is less than Lindor, is just not that. Because let me tell you, since he came up, if you want to just go to when he came up midseason in 2018, Juan Soto's a top 15 and wins above replacement player. But if you want to take 2018 when he only played 116 games and then go into 2019, his first full season, he's third in war. A skush behind Marcus Simeon, which was a surprise when I saw Marcus Simeon up there. But he's right there with Mookie Betts, exactly the same amount of wins above replacement. He's better than Aaron Judge. He's better than Trey Turner. He's a couple of wins better than Mike Trout. He's better than Manny Machado. And when you see that, you know what kind of elite offensive player. Here's a guy that hits for power, uh, walks significantly more than he strikes out in a naked lineup, 
let's put it that way, he's in a naked lineup in, 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 with the Nats. Uh, already has postseason experience. Bryce Harper was gone when he was, uh, and, and, and that was, when I said, I remember saying, you know, the Nats letting Bryce Harper walk is no problem because they got a guy that's better than him in Juan Soto. That was the case. I mean, yeah, you had Rendon who had a big year and Trey Turner was on that team and what have you, but Soto was the offensive cog. He's got postseason experience. He's been performing. And this year, is from a batting average perspective, he's down. I haven't watched. I mean, we've seen him a lot watching uh, him play the Mets. And part of that is I think he's swinging at pitches he normally wouldn't because, quite simply, he's not getting anything to hit because there's no reason to pitch to him. So I can understand why he's hitting a lot less than the 300 you would expect at him. You put him in a lineup with Pete Alonso, you'll you'll see a difference. Now, the rumor has it that the Nats see the Mets as one of the teams. They're going to put him on the market, and teams like the Yankees and the Padres and the Mets and the Red Sox and the Dodgers, you'll get all the usual names. And look, the Yankees, the Dodgers, the Mets, because of their owners, because of the money they have to spend, are always going to be connected to big-time free agents. I mean, the Mets and the Yankees both have their own complexities. First, the Yankees have Aaron Judge that they have to go out and get. Not to say that they wouldn't go out and sign a second big-money contract, but and maybe they'll deal with him two years from now because you don't have to sign him to a contract now. If you take him on, you can negotiate for two years. It's a risk because you're going to have to clear out your treasure trove of prospects, whoever you are. Um, and the Mets and the Dodgers are all going to kind of be in that conversation. But then you'll have teams like Texas. I think John Heyman mentioned Texas and San Diego and Boston and, and the usual kind of suspects that pop up here and there. I think Texas is a little bit surprised. San Diego certainly at times. They would gotten on the Manny Machado and both Manny Machado and Eric Hosmer when they signed those guys. Those were surprised. So you're getting the you're getting a player that has been better than Mike Trout the last few years. And if you're in the National League East like we are and we see him all the time, He's a tough out. He's not comfortable to pitch to. He does not swing at bad pitches. Now, has he gotten into some bad habits this year because he's playing for a really bad team? Maybe. And when he comes over, that might have to get cleaned up a little bit when you're on a competitive team. So I'm less concerned about that. When you look at this from the team side, a 15-year deal is a big commitment, especially a guy that's probably going to get $40-plus million a year. You're looking at a guy that maybe you get those years down to decade, that's going to get $500 million or close to that for that contract. I mean, Ken Rosenthal laughed and said, you know, said, you know, $600 million. Look, you get 15 years, you're looking at a $600 million contract. That is more than a half a billion dollars in one player over a 15 year period. And when you would talk about being married and being tied down with the old ball and chain, like we talk about with Lindor, that's even worse when you think about it. Now, I'd rather be tied down to Juan Soto than Francisco Lindor. Because he's a better player. But this is a significant decision for any team and cannot be taken lightly. And because of that, I don't see how this gets done in the next 14 days. Because, okay, you want to say you don't have to sign him this year and you don't. You don't have to sign him next year and you have two years to figure out if you want to sign him. You are going to have to clean out. If rumors are true, you're going to have to clean out all your prospect capital. All your top prospects. So for the Mets, let's just talk about what kind of, if the Mets can do it. Because the Mets don't really have the ability to give up a young major league player on their roster. Unless you consider Dom Smith or J.D. Davis, those guys. And I think those are guys that are complete throw-ins that will do. That's like putting uh, the, the parsley on the on the meal. Nobody eats the, nobody, the parsley's there for show. There's no value to it. That's what J.D. Davis and Dom Smith are in this kind of thing. They're thrown in because they have to be. Not that the and the Nats might say, "I'll oh, take a chance on Dom Smith. He's got a couple of years. You know, I need to have a, some kind of team to field while I figure out this rebuild." What they're going to look for is Beatty, for Alvarez, maybe Matthew Allen, maybe Callen Ziegler. What you hear, what you know, and it was a perfect analogy. Was and I don't know if it was Joel Sherman or it was John Heyman, but somebody told them in the New York Post earlier today. This is like trading for Kevin Durant. The things, if you're a Knicks fan, the things that you're hearing the Knicks have to give up for Donovan Mitchell the draft picks, and potentially young players on the roster, that's the kind of deal that the Nats are going to be looking for for Soto. Now, I understand every all-star, every trade deadline that goes by and every offseason where he gets less and less control and closer to free agency, the leverage goes down. But this is a franchise-altering move. I think it might have been C.J. Nikowski or Steve Phillips, or I couldn't remember who brought it up the other day, how the Mark Teixeira trade and how the Rangers traded Mark Teixeira and got all of those top prospects, Natalie Feliz, I think it was Matt Harrison. Guys like that from the Braves helped propel them 
to a World Series back-to-back pennants just a few years later. Now, I don't know how close the Nats are to that, because I think the Rangers are a little bit better team than the Nats were when they traded Teixeira, but that's what the plan is here, is to refuel that farm system and to get as much can't-miss prospects as you can that maybe don't have to be in the big leagues next year, but over the next two years puts a young team out there that could compete and win and do the rebuild, similar to what the Marlins have done a couple of times in their history. So if you're the Mets or the Nationals, this is a very complicated, important deal. And I don't know how easy that is to do at a trade deadline. Now, for the Nats, creating that chaos and getting teams all whipped up, like the Dodgers, like the Yankees, and what have you, perfect. But the Mets have to, you know, getting Juan Soto and not addressing the bullpen doesn't necessarily complete the task. Yeah, you say you got Juan Soto. Will you live with Lugo and Adovino and that sweaty bullpen? And maybe Holderman jumps in and Trevor May's coming back and Peterson gets moved into the bullpen and then McGill comes back. So you're like, hey, you know, I got guys coming back. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. I could sell that. I could hope for that. But having a second closer like Robinson would make me feel really good. Now, I don't think that, that you can't do that by getting Soto. What I'm saying is the effort and the time that you're putting into this Soto trade, it's going to lock you up where you have to make it because I don't know if plan B will be there. Will, they, will the Orioles sit around and wait for Soto? This is not going to be like the NBA where everything is on hold because of Kevin Durant. You know, the Orioles are going to go around and say, anybody want Mancini? You know, do you give, oh, you're going to, oh, oh, here's Mancini. You know, maybe the Braves need a, another, you know, the Braves can use another bat, you know, more like a second baseman, but they can use another bat. You know, Albies will come back, you know, they, you know, they might do another one of those, you know, Mancini fits into that component player move. In a lot of ways, the Mets need to do what the Braves did last trade deadline, which is get a bunch of component players. And that, to me, that Robertson, Mancini type of guys, those are the kind of guys you need to get chafing. They don't need to go out and get Soto to compete and win this year. Now, he enhances that lineup in a big way. But let me tell you something. When you pull that trigger on Soto and you give up, Alvarez is gone. I don't want to hear it. I want to hear, you're not, not going to go and sell them on somebody who's the number 15, 16, 17, 18 prospect. Okay, Beatty's gone. Maybe Maurice has gone too, so that's three of five. I don't think they're going to care about Vientos. Uh, you probably have to figure out they're going to want a couple of a young arms. I don't know if Matthew Allen's that. Maybe it's Calvin Ziegler. Maybe there's other guys that are at lower levels that they like better. You know, they're going to do their scouting. The Nats right now are in the driver's seat because they have this asset for two years. Their scouts are going out there and probably saying, this is the farm system I like. The Yankees always market their players well, so they're probably going to have the Yankees in our And the Dodgers are another team. So those three teams, they know have the money, but which one has the best prospect capital? If I'm the Nats, I go after that. For the Mets, this is a chips, and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, and I said, do you want to win a championship? This is a chips the center of the table move, where now you really got to win the next couple of years. Because guess what? You sign Soto and you make him your young, at 25, 26-year-old centerpiece, that's fine. But Pete may be gone. DeGrom may be gone. Uh, you're, you know, basically Lindor and Soto, Lindor is going to be closer to 30 than he is to 25, are going to be clogging up 75, $80 million of payroll for the next decade. So if you have a $300 million payroll, you're going to have to figure out how to, the rest of the $220 million how to fill it out. So any star pitchers that come down the line that aren't, you know, that you don't know about yet may not be able to get paid. Love Pete Alonzo, but Pete's going to want 30, 35 million a year. Maybe 40. You don't know how those markets are going to go. You don't know. I mean, there are NBA players making 50, 55 who don't want $60 million a year with super mass contracts. That's NBA. I know that's the NBA. It's a 12 man roster, but this is where these sports salaries for, all, for elite players are going. You don't think baseball players are sitting back and why should the NBA players make this money? And I don't. So this is a complicated deal. And to me, it's complicated because the team is in a pennant race. And it's complicated because you're really gutting your farm system. Now you have the five picks, and then they're in the midst of making the picks as we're doing this show. So it's possible that Mets have a plan already. I got these five draft picks that are coming in. We'll have a chance to rebuild our system. Let's put our chips there now. Andy Martino made a great point. Do you really believe Francisco Alvarez's catcher, as good as he's hyped, will ever be the player that Juan Soto is? If he's even 80% of the player, 60% of the player that Juan Soto is, he's a very solid big leaguer. Do you really think? 
Because if you think he's Juan Soto, then you don't need to make the deal. I have a hard time believing that. I mean, you heard the guy that played with him, Max Scherzer, talk about even a guy like Soto, who's a once-in-a-generation talent, had things to learn coming into the big leagues. Well, he learned them pretty quick. I mean, that's a guy who played with him, once-in-a-generation talent. They don't come around a lot. They don't get on the market a lot. So, likelihood of this happening right now, I don't think is very good. The likelihood in the offseason, much better. The Mets going after him, very high risk, high reward. Getting Juan Soto in the fold pretty much tells you that the odds of Pete Alonso coming back as a free agent in a couple of years are slim. Because I don't think you give up all your prospect capital for two years of Soto. Maybe, you know, if you win a championship, is it worth it? You win a couple of titles, you get to the World Series a couple of times. To me, I'm willing to live with bad teams. Like, if you're a Nats fan, perfect example, because they're, they're, they're the team connected here. Was the World Series worth it? I think it was. Now, they didn't really, because of the pandemic, get to enjoy the aftermath the next year after. But to me, it was worth it. They And they they had a nice, I mean, for the Nat fan, started in 2012 until 2019. They had a nice seven, eight-year run where they were the cream of the crop in the National League East, and they were pretty much like the Braves are right now. To me, I'm okay with mortgaging the future to win now. There are certain bad mortgages that you go out there and go after players, then there are good ones. Juan Soto, I mean, you're talking about one of the top three, four, five offensive players in the game. Now, the other part we're not talking about, which is really, really important, this is an A-Rod type of deal. And you guys all know what Lindor and the crap he went through coming into this town. You better make sure that you do your homework on who Juan Soto is. Now, you got a perfect guy to speak to, which is Max Scherzer. But you go from Washington and being a good player on, uh, you know, listen, it's the nation's capital, but it's not a big market when it comes to media. It's the Mid-Atlantic. It's as much Baltimore as it is, you know, it's more Baltimore than it is New York, not just because of proximity, because that kind of media market. And now you're going to get a big contract coming to a team expected to win with an owner that is polarizing because of who he is and the kind of industry that he came in and a demanding fan base if you come this next two weeks, that yolk is still around. It's not like they're going to, uh, you know, if they win a World Series and then you come in, maybe it's a little bit mitigated, the pressure. The pressure is going to be intense. Whatever Lindor faced, Soto's going to face that times 1,000, times 100,000. And if he doesn't produce right away, he's going to hear it. And the last that I looked is Soto can't pitch. Soto can't come out of the bullpen. Soto can't get ground balls up the middle. Soto can't catch. Soto can't throw out runners at second base from behind the plate. So if you get Soto and his contract is such an albatross that he prevents you, even with Steve Cohen's money, from rounding out your roster effectively because you had to give up all this cost-effective prospect capital, then the pressure is going to be that much more on him because then he becomes what Mike Trout is, which is a really good player on a mediocre team, and that gets old really quick. Now, the next couple of years, making $20, $22, 23000000 million a year, they could fit him into that, you know, budget. Let's face it, when he's a free agent, the Mets only have two guys that they're obligated to pay that year. Scherzer will be off by 2025. It'll be Lindor, and it'll be Marte on the last year's contract. And at $20 million, unless Marte completely falls off the cliff, he'll be tradable at $20 million a year if you have to dump that salary. Now, it gets even trickier because you all roasted me on Twitter by suggesting to get Josh Bell because everybody wants nobody wants to give up prospects for anything. But then when you suggest they have to take on salary because that's the kind of uh, – that's the weapon the Mets have that no one else has. You don't want to clean up the farm system Well, then take on money. And part of that is taking on Corbin's contract, which is about $60 to $70 million. And Corbin's been a disaster. He had that good year in 19. He's never been the same since, but he's an arm that if you work with him, unless he's hurt, I have to think he's not completely fallen off the cliff, but you've seen it with Chris Archer and Francisco Liriano. When these guys fall off the cliff, they're hard to bring back. Johnny Cueto, when they fall off, it's like, but if there's something in there, you know, I think Hefner could get it out of him. I mean, everybody who comes and pitches in this environment seems to do, they, they seem to maximize to a certain degree even like a Jacob Barnes, think about him. He came in, he wasn't great, but it was like the best he's pitched out of all the stops he's been in. So to me, 
you know, and I guess you could say, well, Chase and Shreve, that's not the case. But Chase and Shreve was pretty good in 2020. I don't know what happened this year. So maybe there's something left and you're going to pay a premium. So now they, you know, maybe you say, hey, I don't want to give you everything. I got to give you painful prospects. And I don't have the positional player that maybe like the young positional player that I could throw in there. Like maybe the Dodgers do or the Yankees. More so the Dodgers. But I could give you these three prospects, Lariano, uh, excuse me, Alvarez, Beatty, and let's say a pitcher like Allen. Let's just throw Allen's name in there. And I'll take on majority of Corbin's deal. You know, maybe they have to pay a little bit of it and give me Soto. So at that point, you take on Corbin for next year, you're probably kissing Carrasco by. You maybe lose Luriano. And look, you're, you're definitely putting DeGrom at risk. Let me tell you, this is complicated, guys. And, and, and it's really hard to do during the, the regular season. And it's, equal, it's even more hard to do when you're trying to win a pennant. But the good news is they have the right owner who has the big bucks, who's bold, who likes to play in the deep end of the pool, that has no cash flow issues, all the things that would get in the Mets' way that wouldn't even make them a serious contender, even if they had the prospect capital under the Wilpons, is not in their way. But it's complex, and Sandy Alderson actually said this when he took over, that big market teams have their own challenges, and sometimes more so than cash-strapped teams because they have the ability or the options that, that these other teams don't, but they have to monitor themselves and their own ability to get their eyes bigger than their stomach, for lack of a better word. So this is a great time to be a Mets fan. It's a great time to be doing this show. This is a a great first half. And I think everybody would agree that this is, I don't want to say a perfect scenario, but this is, when we talk about places that we want to be here on July 17th, we were go back in the time capsule and talk to our March 17th versions of ourselves you're going to tell me oh, the March 17th versions of all ourselves would say, oh, this sucks. We're talking about acquiring Juan Soto, three games up in the lost column. You know, uh, you know, probably worst case scenario, they're going to win 92, 93 games if they play 500 ball, which I think they'll play better than that. They have a tough August schedule, but if they make the right reinforcements, I think they could be better than 500. You think that's a bad place to be? I don't. But it brings a whole other slew of headaches. They call them what? Rich team problems, rich people problems. Well, the Mets have rich people problems. Which sometimes, you know, putting your chips to the center of the table has consequences. And as Mets fans, I know you're not used to being in this position. Let's face it, this is one of the few times you've had a great first half in the team's history. You got 86, 06 this year. So you got 60 years, and 55 of them have probably been, you know, they've mainly been a second half team for a lot of their good seasons, like 15 and 16 and 80, even 88. They were very, they got very hot late in the year. 87, 85, you know, those golden years, they didn't always get off to the best. So 99, 2000, they were more second half teams. So it's weird to be in this spot where they've set themselves up so well, but now comes certain decisions. And I don't envy Billy Epler. I don't envy Steve Cohen because you're looking at, you know, you don't have a lot of bottleneck in that, in that budget after 2023, 24, 25. This is why the Lindor contract is so aggravating because they didn't have to sign that and they probably could have got Lindor back at a discount. I think you could have got him for $10 million a year less. I don't want to get back into it, but that's why you have to make, and I know he wanted to make a statement, but the real statement to make that we're, we're not the Wolpons is going after and signing Soto to a big deal. But do your homework because I mean, this guy's got to be right. He, I, I, You can't, you have to look at the makeup. Can he handle New York? Can he handle being the highest paid player in the sport? Can he handle a $500 million contract? Can he handle that? I don't know him. Scherzer certainly does. That's the guy I'd ask. And you got to be right. You can't just make this deal because he's Juan Soto and he's got the OPS plus of this and the wins above replacement that. And, you know, he's got an on-base percentage of 50% and he walks a billion times and only strikes out X, uh, Y number of times. You got to know that this guy can handle everything that comes with being that kind of paid player in this market, in a town that still has an elite Yankees team across the way and probably always will have the specter of the Yankees because I don't see the Yankees rebuilding anytime soon. They haven't since the early 90s. The next time, it'll be the first time in a generation for some Yankee fans who have never experienced a rebuild, who are in their 30s. 
He'll be 50 before this team has to rebuild. He's still got that across town. And yes, Steve Cohen has mitigated some of that. But remember, until you win, you still have, you know, it wasn't too long ago, just a couple of weeks ago, they were already talking about collapses here in Flushing. So, all right. You guys kind of know it'll be an interesting uh, trade deadline. I think the Mets are going to go more component-wise. I think they'll talk about Soto. I don't think Soto gets dealt. I think this is going to be a conversation that's going to come up frequently, and I think it's going to get really intense in the offseason, especially with all the free agents the Mets have, especially if DeGrom leaves. It's going to get bigger and bigger and, and, and more intense, and I think it'll be very interesting how it develops. This is every bit like Kevin Durant. This is every bit like Donovan Mitchell. This is very NBA-esque. This is what the NBA goes through every summer. It's been brought to Major League Baseball because it's very rare that this kind of talent gets put on the market at 23 years old. And the team is getting sold, so that's another dynamic, as you heard. You know, things could change. I think it's very fluid. So anyway, let's take a quick break, wrap up. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. The Talking Mets podcast is available on many outlets, but the most popular is Apple Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Silva, the host of the Talking Mets podcast, and I encourage you to leave a review about the program on Apple. Just rate it one to five stars, hopefully a five because why wouldn't you? And then if you have time, leave a review. It helps the podcast continue to grow and encourages others to take a listen. You can also email me at MikeSilva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Hope to hear from you soon. And enjoy the rest of the show. All right, we're back. Final thoughts. I'm not going to spend too much time here wrapping up, but uh, great first half. Again, I want to thank everybody for some real support throughout the first half of this 2022 season. Our first regular season with the Minute Media folks and the Rising Apple folks and um, you know the fan-sided podcasting network has been great. So... I wanted to give uh, some thanks. The engagement's been great. You know, really appreciate all the emails. Keep them coming. Mike Silvat, TalkingMetsPodcast.com, no G. And what will we do? So I know that the draft is a big thing. I'm trying to figure out how we can do something about the draft, even though it's not exactly the easiest thing to do because, I mean, what, what are we going to sit here and gush over guys that we're not going to see for five or six years? I mean, it's cool to look back and see Brandon Nimmo and, you know, Pete Alonzo when they were drafted. We weren't talking about Pete Alonzo when he got drafted. It was, what, 2016? We were talking about the Mets' push towards the playoffs. So, you know, you talk about these kids now, we have no idea, you know, what the the deal is. But it will be interesting because where I think it can fall into relevancy to the current team is in the context of this Soto situation, which is not going away. Until he gets traded, it's not going away. It's The Mets are going to be connected to him until the Mets either say, I'm out, or he gets traded. because And, and the prospect capital is going to be a big part of it. So it'll be very interesting on that. Um, have a little history segment coming up, working on that. So enjoy the All-Star game. You know me. I'm not a big All-Star guy. I will try to go out and 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 check in on Pete and the Home Run Derby. I know that's a big deal for some of you. I think it was fun a couple of years back. I definitely think it was important in 2019 because Pete was trying to emerge as this leader. And I, and I think uh, it showed me a lot about him during that Home Run Derby. I think I talked about it on a show back then. I think he's proven he can win the Derby. He's proven that he's a, a a much more, and you heard Charlie Martin even say it, diversified hitter than we could give him credit for. He's been very Piazza-esque at times this year, going the other way. You've seen it with his RBI totals. He's not just a guy swinging from his heels. He struggled a little bit during the pandemic season, and he really learned from that, and he's been a better hitter. It's interesting how both Pete and Dom have taken their struggle. Uh, you know, One was very good during the pandemic season. The other one was not. And they've kind of veered off and one has elevated their game and taken the first base job and put himself into elite run producing status. He's basically the Mets Paul Goldschmidt. And the other guy is, I mean, I hate to say it, is on the way out of the league if he doesn't shape up because he's a triple A player right now. So little history draft, you know, obviously next Sunday is a night game. So we'll try to figure out the schedule there. Subway series coming up. We got a lot in the hopper. So the plan is there'll be another podcast. I think I'll try to get something in about the draft before Sunday. I'm going to try. I can't promise. Working on a couple things. But definitely, I'm trying to work on a fun guest for the Subway Series. 25 years Subway Series. I think we're, all gonna, we're also going to go into the vault. So you're going to hear something from the vault, which I think you'll enjoy. And I'm sure there's some other craziness that we'll get into. So stay tuned. S- take a little rest. We all deserve the rest. The players get the rest. We need the rest. It's been an intense first half. And it's only going to get more intense. And now you've got trade talk to add on top of it. 
So take a little blow for the next couple of days. Watch something that you like. Get away from the game. Go look. Take a walk in nature. Help an old lady cross the street. Read a book. I don't know. Whatever you guys like to do. Listen to this show. And then at the point when I sign off, it's time for you to take a break. All right? You deserve it. All right. That's it. You can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And you can just show an Apple Podcast, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Enjoy the All-Star break. Like I said, go out and get away from the game for a couple of days. Till next time, take care, everybody. You sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done.